0: Good morning, Four Oaks. <clears throat> we haven't met each other. I'm Pastor Paul. And even if we have met each other, I'm still Pastor Paul. Um, so glad you're here worshiping with us. <clears throat> Before we dive into our text this morning, um, just a couple of things. One, um, our AV team has clearly upped its announcement game. And so I can't speak, maybe I am speaking for all of us. We expect bigger and better things every single week, do we not? That'll be exciting. Um, Let me follow up on something that was mentioned in the announcements by Aaron. I don't know if you caught that, but we have recently installed a new air filtration system here at church. Um, It's a pretty expensive investment, but a generous donor uh, from the church um, wanted to make that happen. And um, it's supposed to kill about 99% of bacteria, mold, viruses, sanitizes, surface. I'm not sure completely how it works, except that... We're just not breathing corona air with each other. Okay, so it was isn't that comforting. But I, but my favorite part is, is this comes from the, the brochure, right? It says unlike passive air technologies, the ream halo induct air purifier sweeps through the building, actively purifying pollutants at the source. In addition, the charged plasma induces particles to coagulate, making them bigger and easier for our filters to catch. I'm not sure what all that means, but it sounds totally awesome, right? Now why, why go to all this trouble? Guys, one of the things that we have been anxious to do this season, um, because gathering has been so difficult for all the obvious reasons, is we've wanted to at least remove all the human barriers that we can to gathering together. Um, and we've also wanted to provide more opportunities to gather together. That's why we are doing the sunset service um, in the evening to, to, make, to open up more avenues, venues, to, to get together as a church family. But I want to I just say something, um, and I guess I'm primarily addressing those maybe who are viewing online, maybe those who have been reticent to come back, whether it's on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, um, probably chiefly out of medical concerns. Let me just say a couple of things. Um, number one, we love you. I love you. And we know these are difficult, difficult decisions to parcel through. But if I could pray one thing for us as a church family, it's that God would grace us with wisdom to know what he wants us to do. In other words, whatever we do, whatever decisions we make about gathering, not gathering in person, online, whatever, that we would do prayerfully, that we would do in a posture of submission to him. And sometimes it's difficult to know the, the difference between Presuming upon the grace of God, but then walking in faith. Sometimes it's difficult to discern the difference between patient prudence and paralyzing fear. And there's a lot that's wrapped up in all those things. We all have to make those decisions before the Lord. But I feel compelled to call us as a church family, as we consider them, to prayerfully consider them and to consider what God would have us do. What does faith mean? To not, Yes, to not presume upon his graces, but not to be paralyzed either. Um, for those of us who are gathering not to, to have a, a, an attitude of, of sort of invulnerability or pride or self-sufficiency to realize that in him we live and move and have our being. And so we have to trust God and trust ourselves to him. And before we dive in this morning, I just would love to pray for us in that way. Why don't you join me? Lord, we're asking that you would do a work of grace in the Four Oaks family this season. Father, that you would unify our hearts around Jesus, around the gospel, around the cross. Lord, I do pray for heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above, for every single person that's in this room, that's viewing online, that as they consider these things before you, of what it means together, what it means to walk wisely, what it means to guard their health, but at the same time not to be paralyzed by anxiety or fear. Lord, that you would show us that way. You would, you would weave that path for us. Lord, we pray for our, our times on Sunday night as we gather for our sunset services and just pray, Lord, that it would just be one more opportunity to rehearse, remind ourselves of the truths of, of you and your word and what it means to be your people. And we ask now, Lord, you would bless our time in your word this morning in Genesis. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Genesis 43. This is the brothers' second visit to Egypt. And remember from last time, they had come down to Canaan because they were out of food. They were all sitting around looking at one another. That's what people do during crises, right? Sit around, look at each other, wondering what to do. The brothers went down to Canaan. Egypt and had been resupplied with grain. But as you recall, they ran into a a little problem, right? They ran into this strange man whom they did not know really was the brother they had betrayed and sold into slavery 20 years prior. And he said, if you want grain and to prove to me who you are, of course he knows who they are, then leave behind Simeon, your, your brother, as a hostage, as a Pledge to make sure there's a return visit. And of course, Joseph is doing this for a couple of reasons. One, he wants to see Benjamin. He wants him to bring back Benjamin. But secondly, he wants to test what's in their hearts. Are these the same old brothers they used to be, right? Are they, have they changed? Is there anything different? Do they have repentant hearts? Will they come back and get Simeon? So the passage opens now ominously. It's about two years later, a little less than two years later. Famine is still in the land. And it says they've eaten the grain. And look at verse two Joseph makes a request. And I love the way Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob makes a request. And I love the way Jacob says this. He says, uh, Hey, boys, go out and get us a little food. Makes it sound like they were just sitting around watching the game run down to the Circle K for a $10 jar of salsa, you know, that kind of thing. But I think his understatedness is a cover for the real desperation Jacob feels for his family. And actually, I'm sure they all feel they are out of food. But to secure more food means they're going to have to face their fears. For Jacob, that's going to mean releasing Benjamin into the care of the Lord, into the care of Of these idiot brothers who have just been failure upon failure upon failure. It's gonna it's gonna mean Jacob facing that fear. But for the brothers, it's gonna mean facing the fear of coming face to face with the man as they keep referring to him, Joseph, and wondering what is going to happen. Wondering, is this is this gonna be a good day for Joseph or a bad day for Joseph? They're gonna have to face him. Now, folks, let me just say this, let me situate this story kind of in our cultural context, these are dark days for us, culturally, in the West, even in the world. But in order for us to walk faithfully, we are going to have to come to grips face-to-face with our fears. You see, there is a spiritual famine that has swept across this land, And metaphorically speaking, the world is out of food. No one knows where to go. No one even knows what exactly they need. But I think as we're going to see from this text, what the world ultimately needs is what we need, and that is the mercy of God. The world needs the church, the Christian community, to proclaim it to them. Where else are they going to get it? We have the words of eternal life. We have the storehouses of food. And we don't want to be paralyzed by fear, anxiety, worry over just our physical status when God says there is a spiritual famine here. And I've called you as a church family, as a community, as the church of Jesus Christ to move into that place with mercy. So that's our theme this morning, mercy's mission. And there's three things we're going to note in this passage, and here we go. Number one, Judah's offer. Number two, Jacob's plea. And finally, Joseph's mercy. All right, let's look first at Judah's offer. Now, some people are late bloomers. And some people do their best work in the latest years of their life. I was reading this week about a man named Harlan. He was dead broke at 65. His restaurant had failed. He was drawing Social Security. He was a poor man entering the last quarter of his life. Yet, he finally got someone to try his homemade recipe for fried chicken, right? And so 10 years later, 600 restaurants later, Colonel Sanders, as we know him, did some amazing work at the very end, the tail end of his life. And honestly, that's the story of Judah. We have to remember that Judah is a grandpa at this point. Judah is a widower. And Judah is also a scoundrel, right? Remember back in Genesis 38, how he abandoned his daughter Tamar? Remember Judah back in Genesis 37, he was the guy who had the bright idea of selling Joseph into slavery. Yet as the fourth born, we're going to see a remarkable transformation in the life of Judah, where he is going to move into the position of prominence and as the heir to the promises of the patriarchs. And we want to try to understand how, how did mercy grip the heart of this man at this stage of his life? Now, there are two crucial speeches that Judah makes. There's one today, and then we'll look at the other next week in Genesis 44, which really bring together all the things that God has been doing in the heart of Judah up to this time. Now, this passage begins, of course, with Jacob's request go get us some grain. And then Judah stepping forward, speaking on behalf of the brothers. And he tells them this. He said, Dad, in essence, we're willing to go back. But you have to understand something, Dad. Benjamin's going to have to go. You're going to have to release Benjamin. The, the man said he's not going to see us unless Benjamin is with us. And you have to love how, they, how, how the brothers and Joseph, um, Jacob keep referring to Joseph as the man. Don't you love that? It just emphasizes, I think, how formidable their task is. And of course, Jacob pretends to object. I mean, he kind of throws up a few measly self-defenses, but it's just for show, right? He knows they have to go. It's just like getting your grandparents on the internet. They, they, they're going to let you know how much they don't like it and they're opposed to it at every step of the journey, but they reluctantly agree. That's, that's Jacob. And he says, but at least let me prepare this gift as befitting a dignitary and this is where I think we really begin to see the grace of God emerge. First of all, just think about the brothers in, in Toto in, in the all-encompassing aspect of looking at their lives. We've well we've chronicled their many sins, their many failures, their, their, their treachery over and over. But remember, they are the guy who threw Joseph into the pit. They are the guys who broke their dad's heart. They're the ones who lied to him for 22 years. But now, now this, we can't overstate this. They are willing, they are ready, with trepidation nonetheless, but they are willing, they are ready to go back down to Egypt to rescue their brother Simeon. They, they, are, they are ready to, I mean, at one time it was, it was every man for himself. Now it's all for one, one for all. They have lives. They have children. They have grandchildren. They have, they have things going on. But they are willing to set that aside, to risk their very lives in going to rescue his brother. See, jo- jo- Joseph's test is already beginning to bear fruit. But secondly, we see God's work at grace, particularly in Judah. And he makes an offer. Now this is an interesting offer. He says, Dad here's the deal. If I can't bring Benjamin back, I'm going to give up myself as a surety, as a deposit, as a guarantee. Now, remember when Reuben tried this? Reuben says, give us Benjamin to go down with us. um, And I commit to giving up my sons if I don't bring him back. You got to love Reuben, right? Parlaying the lies of others for his own guilt. But look at what distinguishes Judah. He says, I'm not going to offer up the lives of my sons. See, I'm going to offer up my very life. I'm going to offer up myself. I'll be my own down payment. I'll, you can claim my life, dad, as responsible for the safe guarantee of the return of Benjamin. Now, we can't run past this because... The last time we saw Judah, remember? Judah 38. I mean, Genesis 38. He had unknowingly impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He had hypocritically condemned her. But yet, as we see, that was a turning point. See, when Judah was confronted, what does he say? He says, I am the man. And, and, And what's the irony of this, and I think Moses is trying to draw our attention to it, At the height of his wickedness, Judah that is, what had he put up for surety and deposit? He had put up his own cloak, his own signet ring, his driver's license, passport, social security card. He had entrusted all those things in order to hide his sin with what he thought was the prostitute. But now Judah is having to put up a whole different kind of deposit. And you can see the transformation in his life because He's like, it's not none of those things any longer. I'm putting up my very self. You see, Judah's conscience has been awakened. The spirit of Christ is operating, moving in him. And he's putting himself forward in faith. Now, here's just a point of application encouragement to us before we leave this point. You've often said you can't teach an old dog new tricks, Past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. Now, you need to understand that is completely true of human beings apart from the Spirit of God. But church, that's not the gospel. Nothing is impossible with God. Some of you have been asking for changed hearts with someone that you know and love for weeks, years, even decades. Some of you have been asking God to change your heart because of some sort of besetting sin or struggle. Some of you have been praying for relationships. You've been praying for souls to be saved. And it's easy, is it not, to grow cynical, to grow, to to, to be calloused, to feel like God's not listening, he's not hearing. And, And the story of Judah is an amazing testimony of God's grace that sometimes God does his most profound work at the most inopportune times or the most times that we would think it would be least likely that he would do so well why does he do that the show is not about you the show is not about me To show that it's 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 not about razzle dazzle and all the tricks that we have in our in our bag to keep things moving and to keep things putting along no 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 God wants to be revealed and glorified and worshiped as God And so, church, if you find yourself in one of those Judah kind of situations, many years with no fruit, many decades with seemingly little hope, persevere, Jesus would say. He told this parable to the disciples, the Gospels tell us, so that they would not give up and they would keep on praying, keep on trusting, keep on walking in faith. And so we see God's mercy at work, right, in this request of Judah. But we also see God's mercy at work in Jacob's plea, our second point. Let's go there. You know, we've journeyed a long time with Jacob. And looking at his life is like studying the history of the American Stock Exchange, is it not? It's just just high highs and like low lows. It's Black Monday every day in that guy's life, it seems. But here, I think we see quintessential, regenerate, trusting in God, Jacob, who grabs hold of the mercy of God and is pleading God's cause on his behalf. So look at verse 13. Jacob says this. He says, Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send you back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now, when he invokes the name of God, God Almighty, El Shaddai, that name is always used in the context when the patriarchs are invoking, or the people of God are invoking the name of the covenant-keeping God. In other words, when the Israelites or when the patriarchs wanted to remind God of, of who God is and what he had promised, of how he had promised to save the nation of Israel, to give them a piece of land, to give them Messiah, to bless the nations of the world, they cried out, El Shaddai. You see, God, Jacob, is invoking the help of God. This is Jacob coming to God, prost- just laid out on the ground, confessing his need, saying, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And this is not que sera, sera. That, That's not whatever will be, will be. That's not what this is. This is not fatalistic. He's a sense saying, what else can I do? All I can do is submit myself to the care and providence of God. And some of you, I know, find yourself in that very place. Pastor Paul, I don't know what else to do. All I can do is, as we saying, is wait and pray and hope. And that is Jacob. By the way, I think this is exactly what we see in Genesis 32, right? When Jacob gets ready to go meet Esau. And what, what, what does Jacob do before he meets Esau? Jacob knows he has no tricks left, right? So he sends his wives, his daughters, his family, all of his possessions on ahead of him. He waits to meet Esau by himself. He wrestles with the angel at night. And through that struggle, he receives mercy and grace. So when when Jacob pleads here to God, God have mercy, do you know this is the first time in all of Genesis the word mercy is used? It's used twice in this chapter. And how interesting that it's used at at least to this point in time At the moment of the greatest need of the people of God, folks, we can't forget, God's people are literally about to be exterminated. The sons, Jacob, they have no more tricks up their sleeves. There's nothing, there's no razzle-dazzle. They can't pull one out of the back pocket. They have no food. They're about to perish. Their life, their fate is clearly and decisively in God's hand. And again, when we begin to think about it this way, we understand, don't we, when we step back from it, God's design through our trials. We've been talking about this at our sunset service on Sunday nights from James. When James says consider it joy, he means count it joy, assess it as joy. Why? Because This is hard for us to hear, but listen, God is not merely allowing the events of our life to happen. And then sort of after the fact, figuring out how to best concoct them like a recipe that goes wrong in the kitchen. And then you've got this mess over here. What do we do with this mess? Okay. You typically stick it in the refrigerator. It makes all things better, right? No, God actually orchestrates trials. God actually designs trials. God actually ordains trials to bring us to our point of the greatest desperation. Now, why in the world would God do that? So that God would be God. So that when he shows up with his mercy, we can say with Paul, this happened so that we would not rely upon ourselves, but upon God who what? Raises the dead. And so, Jacob, you see the work of God grace in his life because he is pleading for mercy. That's how you always know God is evident and working in your life. Is that when you don't feel your need, unless you don't feel a less need for the mercy of God, you feel more. See, because as you draw closer to God, as I draw closer to God, he begins to reveal things to us, that if he showed it to us all at one time, we would just be dead in our tracks, we'd be overwhelmed. But as we draw closer to him, he reveals these things about ourselves so that we would seek him all the more. And so we see his work in this plea from Jacob for mercy. And then ultimately we see in the pinnacle moment of this story, God's mercy worked through Joseph. Let's look at this. So it says the brothers are called to Joseph's home. Now, you have to know that was like a death sentence to the brothers, right? Why are you inviting a bunch of Hebrews to your house? If you're the most powerful leader in Egypt, because it's a well-known fact that leaders kept a prison at their house, and it wasn't to serve tea, right? Right? We think about the story of, when we saw this on our trip to Israel as a Four Oaks group a number of years ago, we went to see the, the ruins of Caiaphas, the high priest's house. And in his house was this hole, was this dungeon where they kept Jesus while he was being questioned. Being invited to this guy's house, it's like Al Capone inviting you to a banquet with a glass of wine in one hand and a baseball bat in the other. right? Highly unusual. And so they are right to be suspicious. they are right to be paranoid. They do not know what to make of this overly friendly welcome. Now, here is the rich irony of this text. You see, they think they are in trouble for the extra money that they discovered in their bags when they went back to Canaan on their previous trip. And they know they were innocent of that. they're, They're not innocent of much in this life, but they knew they were innocent of that. That's what they thought they were in trouble for. But here's the irony. They were actually guilty of something far worse and they didn't even know it. See, they were actually guilty of betraying and selling into slavery and horribly abusing the second most powerful man in the world who now had them dead to rights. You see, they were more guilty in, in a more of a precarious situation than they ever could have dreamed. It, they were scared now, but if they had known who this was and the position he held in, I mean, they would, they would be like, like Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, before the throne of God, Lord, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I am, uh, just obliterate me because I'm seeing up close and personal Your holiness. And guys, that's true for us too. If we really knew what an affront and offense to God our sin really was, we would be more than just a little uncomfortable. We would have more than just a tinge of conscience, right? We would be terrified. And we would be calling out to the Lord, we would be crying for mercy. And that's, that's, we just don't know the half of it when it comes to our sin. And that's the position the brothers are in. What's Moses showing us? That's the question. Moses is showing them clearly their desperate need for mercy. And folks, you haven't gotten the point of this sermon unless God is showing you your desperate need for mercy. My desperate need for mercy. Our desperate need for mercy. A Savior. And in this story with Joseph, what we see is that Joseph is actually a conduit of the mercy and grace of God. This is why we say Joseph is a prefigure of Christ. He is he's he's showing a glimpse of what happens when Jesus comes and the role that he plays. But I want you to notice a few things in this passage. Everything Joseph is doing here prepares the way for and anticipate reconciliation with his brothers. You see, next week is a hard week. They're going to, I mean, they can't go any lower. And the reason that, and this is all part of his plan, by the way, Joseph's plan to, to work in their hearts to bring them to forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. But they're going to reject, okay, they're going to reject his mercy and grace, or he's going to, they're going to reject his stern discipline if they don't know that underneath it all, it's designed for their souls. It's designed for their, for their mercy, for their salvation. Let me just show us a few ways in which this mercy comes out here. Look at, first of all, Joseph's generosity. They come to the steward and they're like, um, we got back to Canaan and we got home with more than we started with. And what do we do? They are clearly fearful. They, are, they, they think this has put them in a precarious situation. And it isn't it an interesting? Obviously, we know Joseph had, he put it in there. Or he had the steward put it in there. What does he tell them? Peace to you. Literally, shalom. In other words, God's provided for you. See, the steward is speaking peace over them. We have to remember that their physical need had not gone away. They still needed grain. They still needed money. Joseph knows this. Joseph could have obliterated them the first go around, but Joseph is not just merely after restitution. He's after repentance. He's after restored hearts. He's after reconciliation. And we see his generosity to them. Number two, we see his kindness. I want you to think about this for a minute. Joseph entreats them in conversation. He invites them into his home. He serves them dinner. I mean, this is unheard of. We think because that he ate separately for them, this is like being at the little kid's table at Thanksgiving. That's not what this is like. This is, I mean, a high, high honor. See, when we think about Joseph's extravagance, And the fact that he's throwing this feast for them, think about the irony Moses is drawing our attention to here. It was 22 years prior to this that the brothers also had a feast. And what was happening during that feast? Their brother was in the pit crying out. They feasted while he lay dying and crying. Guys, these guys deserved death, but instead they got a feast. This thing that Joseph is doing, it it reminds us, and in in, in a literal way, Kent Hughes said this, he says, literally, Joseph is killing them with kindness. You see, we have the 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 misconception that that God just kind of gives out his grace and his mercy in small doses, small morsels, little bitty pieces. But God is actually extravagant in his grace, Extravagant in his love, extravagant in his mercy. And he's pouring it out on the brothers. Now, it's interesting, there's a little gamesmanship going on here in the middle of this. And it says that Joseph had them all lined up to eat in the order of their birth. And so think about Reuben here at the end, Benjamin here at the other end. And of course, they're all amazed and don't know what to make of this. And then it says that they gave Benjamin five times the proportion. I don't know what that means. Okay. I don't know extra helping of mashed potatoes. I I don't, I don't really know, but it was all, whatever this was, it was all meant to convey a special treatment for his only full brother that was there. Now, why is Joseph doing all of this? Because he's Reminding them of their position in the family. He's reminding them of who Benjamin is. He is testing their hearts. Are they going to treat Benjamin just like they treated me? What are they going to do with this? How are they going to respond? You see, at this point in time, reconciliation is not guaranteed. Before there can be reconciliation, Jesus tells us, You can't have reconciliation unless there is forgiveness. See, the brothers are going to have to show themselves repentant, remorseful, and that we'll get to all that next week. But in order for that to happen, they have to see their brother as merciful. They have to remember, Joseph has our best in mind. Folks, if you're in the middle of an extreme test of providence, of suffering in your life right now, do you see God as merciful in this? Do you see this as part of God's love and care for your soul? Romans 2.4 says it this way, Or do you presume on the riches of, the kind, of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's patience, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, it is through, their, through his kindness, through the kindness of Joseph, that the bro- he is slaying the brothers of all their self-sufficiency even though they don't know their precarious position, they know they don't deserve this. And folks, may may God, through this story, remind us of our desperate need for his mercy, that he has freely and graciously poured out upon us, not because we deserve it, but precisely because we didn't, or else it wouldn't be mercy. See, when we read this story, I think Moses is holding up a mirror, and he wants us to see ourselves in it. He wants to see ourselves as Judah. He wants us to see ourselves as these brothers. And in doing so, as we are brought low, that he would raise us up by fixing our heart and our mind upon Jesus. Do you know this, Jesus? How is God calling you to walk in faith and to deepen your trust in him this season. Is it a severe providence? Is it a trial? Is it suffering? Is it confusion? But God says, it's my kindness, remember, my extravagant grace that leads you to repentance. So come and trust me. Turn to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.